Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. Good morning and welcome to this week's podcast of Moses and Methuselah. This week we will be discussing two subjects. The first subject is investment trusts and the second subject will be the performance of the various sectors in the stock markets year to date. So I'd like to start by saying that Jonathan Davis is one of the leading authorities on the subject of investment trusts in the UK. And so he is very well placed to answer these questions. So Jonathan, if I may, can I kick off by asking a very basic question, which is that how do investment trusts differ from open-ended funds, such as mutual funds or investment companies which issue shares? How do they, they differ from investment trusts, Jonathan? Okay, Peter. Well, thank you for that uh, flattering introduction. I will uh, endeavour to live up to uh, that uh, fulsome praise you've given me. Um, the, the answer to that question is that investment trusts are different from the conventional kind of investment funds that you will, that m- many people will, will own, and indeed uh, of the kind that you yourself are uh, manage in your in your company, Peter. Um, but investment trusts is a kind of it, it's a fairly uh, unique uh, UK. Uh, structure for a fund. It dates back to the 19th century. And it's, they were called investment trusts because originally they were governed by trust deeds rather than company law, which is a boring technical detail we don't need to go into. But essentially now you can also call them investment companies. They are listed companies on the stock market. And that is what distinguishes them from uh, ordinary open-ended funds. So unlike a, a, an open-ended fund, you can buy shares in an investment trust on the open market. You don't deal with the actual manager of the fund. You deal with other buyers and sellers in the stock market, just as you would with any other company like a BP or Shell or Unilever or any of these big corporate names. So the other difference is that an investment trust has a board of directors uh, who are accountable to shareholders in the same way uh, as uh, directors of other public listed companies are accountable to their shareholders. It's a very good explanation. And it has struck me that more sophisticated investors have often tended to prefer investment trusts to open-ended investment companies, for example. So why would you say that sophisticated investors or more sophisticated investors are attracted to investment trusts? That's a good question, Peter, because uh, those who do invest in investment trusts, the people who I call sort of connoisseurs uh, of investing, prefer investment trusts to open-ended funds in many cases, not exclusively, but in many cases. Uh, And that stems from a belief that the performance of investment trusts uh, is generally, over time, superior to that of equivalent open-ended funds. Now, I say that, that's what they believe. There has actually never been Uh, comprehensively demonstrated uh, in the statistics. And that is not so much because uh, there isn't data to support the idea. It's more to do with the fact that uh, the size of the investment trust sector is so much smaller than the open-ended fund universe that it's actually very difficult to come up with statistically significant uh, 
explanations of the superior performance investment trust. But such data as there is suggests that on average, you'll probably get an, an extra 1% per annum from an investment trust compared to an equivalent uh, open-ended fund over time. But that is an average, and there are many examples where that is not the case, and many examples where that is the case. But it is generally believed that they are uh, a superior way to invest, partly because of the performance, but also uh, critically because they do have this governance, superior governance arrangements uh, with a board of directors accountable to shareholders. I see. So if we take the question of fees out of the equation, um, and if we also take into account the fact that if you own an investment trust or shares in an investment trust and you want to exit your investment, you need to find a buyer for those shares. How have investment trusts, would you say, how have they performed through this deep financial markets crisis that we're in? How has the performance been for uh, investors, let's say, since the beginning of the year? Okay, well, we do have some very good uh, numbers on that. Uh, and I'm happy to say that the evidence suggests that investment trusts have, on average, again, performed better than equivalent open-ended funds and also better than the market as a whole. So just to give you uh, some, uh, a number on that, since the start of the year, which is the easiest way to measure this, I think, uh, the all-share index, the main uh, equity market index in the UK, has fallen by between uh, 20 and 25 percent. It's it's moved around a little bit between that, between those two figures. Uh, but the average investment trust in the equity investment trust, that is, i.e. comparable ones, is down by only about 15 percent. So they have actually performed significantly better than the all share index over that period, and better than the average uh, all company equivalent uh, open-ended fund. I see. Now, the other question which intrigues me, and we, dis we touched on this question a couple of weeks ago, which is the suspension or the delaying of the payment of dividends by many companies, either because they're obliged to uh, by being leaned on by governments, or they're obliged to by circumstances, or simply because they want to keep their powder dry. But how can investment trusts go on paying dividends to their shareholders when the dividends that they are receiving from the companies they invest in are being cut potentially or effectively being cut? How does that, how does that work? Okay, so this is one of the great strengths of the investment trust sector, is that because they are listed companies, uh, they are, and because of the rules that govern the way that they operate, they are allowed to, they do not have to pay out all their income immediately to investors. And so they have to pay out at least 85% of the income they receive from companies they've invested in. But they can keep the remaining up to 15% as what they call a revenue reserve. And the whole idea of a revenue reserve is rather like a rainy day fund. In other words, it is to cope with situations just like the one we are now living through where there is some kind of disruption to the market or to the industry in which they operate or to the companies in which they invest. Uh, and they can draw on these revenue reserves to keep their dividends at the same level as before, or indeed to continue increasing them. I mean, one of the, one of the best marketing tools that the investment trust sector has is the fact that there are a large number of investment trusts which have consistently 
increase their dividends every year for many years. I think the longest running one is the City of London Investment Trust, which has increased its dividend every year for the last 53 years through every kind of crisis that we've lived through in our lifetime. And there's another 10 or so which have been uh, have had that record over, over 40 years. And they do that by being able to draw on their revenue reserves to maintain their dividends in years when the flow of income coming into the trust has been disrupted for some reason. So that is a great advantage, and one reason why they performed so well this year. Jonathan, that's very logical what you're saying, and I think it's very important for UK investors who rely on dividend streams probably more than non-UK investors for whom other aspects of an investment portfolio are more important, and you and I have been talking about this for a long time. So your explanation is very interesting for the investment trusts. Now, to move on, obviously there are so-called alternative asset trusts, in other words, that invest through alternative styles or in alternative sectors of the markets. Can you maybe explain what they are and how do they differ from what I would call the plain vanilla investment trust, Jonathan? That's a very good question, Peter, and I will endeavour to do so. Basically, these, the investment uh, trust uh, universe consists of two kinds of investment trusts. One is these, what we would like to call conventional equity investment trusts. So these are funds that invest in other shares or in, uh, uh, or in uh, certain other kinds of assets, but basically listed assets. And then these alternative asset trusts are ones which have become particularly popular in the last 10 years since the global financial crisis are companies that don't invest in listed securities, uh, in, in mainstream listed securities, but also list in different kinds of asset classes which aren't easy to access for the ordinary private investor. And so these include, these include uh, property funds. Uh, obviously, there are open-ended property funds which have their own issues. But property funds, private equity funds, there are a number of trusts that invest in specialist debt vehicles which basically are doing some of the job that the banks used to do before the global financial crisis, such as leasing and things like that, where the banks have been ordered to cut back or being forced to cut back, if you like. And then there's some, pre some completely different, um, uh, rather singular asset classes, uh, such as one, a recent one, which has been quite popular and is very interesting, is one that invests in music royalties. So it's buying up the royalty streams of well-known pop stars, uh, which provide... Uh, can provide an interesting income over a period of time. So there's a great variety of different types of alternative assets. And their, their benefit to investors is not just that they are different kinds of investment, but they have diversification value. In other words, they, have, they tend to behave in different ways to your average stock market investment fund. And so therefore, when the stock market does badly, these, these kind of alternative assets won't do quite so badly. Having said that, they had some very mixed experience in this current crisis. Well, that, of course, leads me to wonder whether there are any alternative investment trusts that buy in the royalty streams of renowned and successful authors such as yourself, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> that will come, I'm sure. That will come. That will come, no doubt. Uh, so putting all this together, um, which sectors would you say in the investment trust space um, have been, let's say, suffering most um, this year as a result of all these black swans that we discussed last time? 
Right. Well, to explain that, I just have to mention one other feature of investment trusts, which is why they are uh, mainly of interest to more sophisticated investors. And that is because of this concept of the discount. And the discount in an investment trust is a very important uh, aspect of the whole uh, edifice, if you like. And if you don't understand how discounts work, you really shouldn't be considering investing in investment trusts at all. Essentially, the price at which you can buy and sell a share in an investment trust is determined by the market for buyers and sellers. Whereas with an open-ended fund, you go back to the, the provider and they, they offer you the, an exit at roughly the net asset value of the fund. In other words, what the value of the underlying holdings are. With an investment trust, you only get the price that uh, somebody else is prepared to pay you to buy it. And that may well differ from the actual net asset value of the trust itself. And so that is what we call a discount. If the, if the, if the price you're quoted is below the net asset value, it's called a discount. And if it's above the net asset value, it's called a premium. So sometimes you have to pay more than the net asset value just to get into the trust. Now, having said that, the, uh, the effect of that is that when you have declines in a, in a performance of an investment trust, that tends to be magnified by, the, uh, by a widening of the discount. So in other words, they're more volatile. The share price of investment trusts are more volatile than the change in the daily price of an open-ended fund. And if you don't understand that, then of course you can get your fingers badly burned. So having said that, the ones that have been most badly affected are particularly in the property sector, where in common with open-ended funds, where obviously a lot of property fund trusts uh, have to collect rent from tenants of properties, and those tenants are suffering badly from the effects of the coronavirus in certain cases. Uh, some trusts have done very well in that sector, such as um, a couple which, uh, which are effectively uh, are paid by the government. So they are, for example, they've been financing GP surgeries in the UK, uh, and that, that is supported by the NHS, so they've been paid in full their rent, whereas others who are reliant on retails, shopping centres, for example, have done less well because they've not been able to collect as much rent. And so they've been threatening to, notwithstanding the general advantage of investment trusts, they've been forced to say that they will have to reduce their dividends uh, in many cases because the loss of rental income is so extreme. And other sectors we've done badly include the private equity. They've, uh, they've fallen quite sharply. Uh, and also all these uh, specialist debt instruments have, uh, have fallen quite sharply too. Uh, and there is diversity of performance within each sector as well. So there's a, there's a, it's a very mixed picture, shall we say. A mixed picture. And obviously, the, the two sentiments of greed and fear play some kind of role. And presumably, when you have such a fearful environment as you've had uh, during 2020, that will affect the discount or, or the premium. Whereas when the sentiment of greed is prevalent, that probably means that discounts to the net asset value are less widespread. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, for example, at the moment, you'll find that uh, uh, any kind of investment trust that can more or less guarantee its future income uh, is trading at a small premium, or in some cases, a large premium, because of the security of that knowledge that the income is coming in is very attractive to investors. And so they're prepared to bid up the share price in order to, uh, in order to get, get that secure income. And, and by the same token, if their, uh, if their uh, future income is uh, threatened in any way or at risk from the virus effects, then they will tend to trade at a wider discount. And that's been what's happening. Well, that's very comprehensive and very interesting and very instructive 
not only for the sophisticated investors, but also maybe for those who want to turn their attention for the first time to this space. So thank you very much, Jonathan. That was very useful. Should we move on to the stock market, uh, the wider stock market, and maybe take a look at what sectors have been doing this year since the beginning of the year? And um, I just wondered whether you would like me to just go through those sectors that have done least badly compared with those sectors that have done most badly. And we can discuss why that is the case. Absolutely. Well, why don't we do that? I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that has obviously been most marked of anybody who's an investor at all will have noticed that there has been uh, an extraordinary amount of uh, what I could call polarization in the performance of uh, different parts of the stock market. Uh, not only have the price movements been very dramatic in many cases, but there clearly have been differences between the main sectors. So yes, uh, why don't we kick off, Peter, by telling us uh, who the who should like the runners and riders have been, who have been the who been the best, and who have been the worst sectors uh, so far in the stock market? Perhaps explaining also what is, what is the concept of a sector in the first instance, I suppose. Yes, exactly, because the concept of a sector is sometimes a little bit misleading. When you look, for example, at the things that are thrown in under the banner of technology, which cover a wide multitude of sins, or healthcare, which cover another wide multitude of sins, it, 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 you probably need to go in and dig a little bit deeper. But to answer your question, what has done sector-wise, which sector has done least badly? And you won't be surprised to hear that the answer is the healthcare sector, because throughout the crisis, this sector has been resilient, uh, predominantly because of the high utilization rate of the underlying products and the inability to stop using them. For example, pharmaceutical drugs and certain medical devices, hospital equipment, and so on. And then within that, you've got certain sub-segments which have been more resilient, like, for example, ostomy care or uh, has been more resilient than elective knee or hip surgery uh, because obviously you can put your your knee or your hip surgery, put it onto the back burner, whereas certain other things you can't because they're more urgent. So I'd say overall that sector obviously has been what I would call the best performing sector globally. And that goes throughout the USA, Europe and the rest of the world and it's actually pretty obvious. The, another sector which, again, there's quite profound logic as to why it's done relatively well is the so-called consumer staples. And um, you've been reading in the papers that things like pasta and baked beans, uh, the sales of pasta and baked beans have, been, have held up much better. They appear to have been favorites. So it's part of the provision stocking, if you like. And so certain companies like Procter & Gamble or Reckitt Benkiser, for example, have a certain uh, a general diversity in their products. And that has allowed them to benefit across an increased trend towards health and hygiene, if you like. So uh, obviously, one doesn't yet know how the supply chains of these companies will, will hold up because they are long and complex and over many years and they've run a, a leaner and leaner 
supply chains uh, to an extent which could produce a supply issue. But stock prices have suggested that investors have flocked there. That seems to me a relatively logical reaction by investors. And then, of course, I was mentioning information technology. That's, of course, a mixed bag, which includes software, semiconductors, IT services, electronic equipment, and so on. And some of these are resilient. Uh, for example, the low operating costs of software ought to protect the businesses from an outright collapse. But, of course, the increased globalization trends and exposure to global growth will hurt others. I'm just mentioning this because we said earlier on that uh, people put businesses under the banner of a sector, but actually you subdivide sector into, into, um, into its component parts. So those are the obvious good ones. Okay, so, uh, and in, in general terms, so what we're saying is that those th three sectors in particular have done better than the market overall, uh, by some margin in some cases. Um, they're all down, by the way, of course. They're all, they've all fallen somewhat, but they haven't, uh, some have fallen much less than others. Okay, so what about down at the other end, in the, if you like, in the, uh, in the worst performing category? What, what can we see down there? Jonathan, I'm afraid to say, and this is something that you and I have also discussed at length over the, over the, over the last 40 years or more that we've been talking to each other and looking at the markets, it's the usual suspects. And the usual suspects, of course, are financials. And the usual suspects within the financials are the banks. And of course, in the banking sector, you've got bad and less bad. Less bad are the American banks, whose uh, forced recapitalization over the past 10 years since the global financial crisis has helped them become more resilient and has helped their, their top line and their earnings. And you, you saw that in the, in the banks that reported in the current earnings season. And then you've got the European banks, for example, who are less well capitalized. And you can see that from their return on equity. And, but one is bad and the other is very bad. And so if you look at the returns for the investors, not only year to date, who own banking shares, uh, it's been abysmal. And in fact, the long-term returns have also been appalling. And now, of course, the optimists will say that the price to book value is at its lowest ever. But the obvious answer to that is, well, what is book value? How can you determine the level of non-performing loans in the balance sheet of a bank? So if you add to that negative interest rates, the weakness in consumer loans, and of course, increased provisioning, and certain counterparty bankruptcies, um, you, you can see why the share prices have collapsed. Uh, that's not even before we even start the conversation about synchronized slowdowns in, in global growth. growth. So those are the obvious suspects. Another area of obvious suspects are energy companies. I mean, you've seen what has happened in the oil uh, and gas market even since the last time we spoke, since our last week's podcast. It's, been, it's really been appalling. 
and where the oil majors and the OPEC oil producers were very much on the front foot at, at the time when inflation was rampant. Uh, today, it's disinflation or deflation, deflation which is rampant or potentially rampant. And of course, the demand weakness uh, combined with the spigots of oil being opened up between the Russians and the Saudi Arabians who, are, who have embarked upon an all-out price war, that's very, very ugly. And so you've got a lot of shale oil and gas producers in America who are now firmly on the back foot. And that has been reflected not only in the share prices of these producers, in as much as they're quoted, but also in the corporate bond prices in the US, for example, where many of these corporate bonds have become junk bonds. So energy, banking, and related sectors such as materials and industrials, which go hand in hand, have been hit very hard with a slowdown in production capacity as well as consumer demand. So whenever you see uh, ISM manufacturing services surveys uh, being very weak, it reminds you why, and you can make the link to these, to these sectors. So these sectors have performed a lot worse than the stock market as a whole, whereas the better sectors have performed better than the stock markets as a whole, and now you can see why. Okay, I think it's fair to say. So therefore, it's actually not quite straightforward just to say this is all related to the virus and the market. Uh, I think it's fair to say that if we can cast our minds back to those extra what now seem extraordinary days before the global financial crisis, of course, it was the banks that were leading the leading the stock market higher because they were all they were gearing up. They were they were lending to also anybody and his and his dog. Uh, regardless of credit quality, and that was in turn what actually created the crisis. But there was a period for several years when the banks were doing extraordinarily well. Uh, interest rates were also positive and, and, uh, and so on, which was also helpful for them. Um, but, uh, and the oil and the energy companies, of course, have been, you know, energy is basically a commodity at the end of the day. And over time, we all know, the long-term rate of return on commodities is about zero, but it tends to be very, either very high or very low at different points in the cycle. So we can't say that they're doing badly now just because of the virus. It's partly because of these uh, underlying, if you like, this, uh, underlying health issues that they, both these sectors have, if you like. And I suppose the fact that in the case of the banks, I know a little bit more of yours, the, the government has been telling them what to do, essentially, which is, uh, is, is making a bad situation even worse. Um, so do you think, though, that I mean, one of, the, one of the issues that comes up, one of the conversational issues that comes up all the time with people who follow the markets is that Ah, well, you know, the worse things do today, the better they're going to do tomorrow, in other words. And this has been the case often in a traditional bear market. If you, uh, In a traditional bear market, it tends to be the really bad companies that have survived that then tend to do very well in the immediate when the market picks up again. Uh, but do you think we're in that kind of situation now, or are we in some kind of different kind of environment because of the virus and its impact? We're definitely in a different kind of environment today, but that's not only because of the virus and its impact. What the virus and its impact has accentuated is the contraction, the war, the war between the contraction of demand and the contraction of supply. 
And that is a very deflationary background. And that is something that we will be discussing in the next few weeks. But to answer your question, just because a share price has fallen, it doesn't mean that it's going to bounce back. It depends on the underlying business. And just because a price earnings ratio is cheap, it doesn't mean that you've got to buy the share. You've got to buy the share because of the quality of the underlying business. And you've got to look at certain factors like return on invested capital, incremental return on invested capital, sales growth, earnings per share growth, and a whole lot of other factors which serve to justify the level of a price earnings ratio. So I wouldn't necessarily just go buying a share because it's collapsed and because it's unloved. I think that the stock market as a whole is much cleverer than the participants in the stock market. So I think a fair degree of homework is required before jumping to the conclusion that just because something's gone down, it is going to bounce back again, Jonathan. Right. Well, of course, that's what we're going to be tracking over the next uh, few weeks. Uh, we'll see whether the market ha will recover further from here. So far, the picture's been one of, we've had a, we had a very sharp decline in March and a, and a, and a mini panic in March, if you like, uh, and liquidity issues. And since then, things have stabilized. People have begun to see some sort of uh, uh, end to this particular crisis, even if it's not a particularly agreeable one that they can see at the moment. Um, and we're hoping that... Um, this kind of stability will continue. But these are all subjects for the next next week and future weeks. So thank you, Peter, yet again for a very fascinating conversation. And uh, let's talk again soon. Thank you very much. Indeed, speak to you next week, John. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silent. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice. Thank you.